0: Are you ready for God's Word today? Grab your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 16, everybody. John chapter 16. And we're going to stand in just a minute as we read the Word of God. We love to stand as we read the Word of God just to honor it as the Word of God. Uh, John chapter 16. So John is the fourth gospel. Um, It was written last um, it, it was written by John. Now, you know, scholarship, most people accept, and scholarship has typically accept, accepted John as John the Beloved, as John one of the twelve, John the son of Zebedee, um, as the author of John and first, second, and third John. Um, there, there, there are some things that, that possibly would mean um, that it was not actually that John, but John, what is known as John the Elder, who was one of the seventy. Who hung out with Jesus as well, and um, and there's reasons for that. But the bottom line is um, what we do know is whether it was John the son of Zebedee or John the Elder, they were. It's an eyewitness account. They are telling us what they saw. In fact, John is writing for one purpose. Uh, he says it in chapter twenty. He said, "I've written these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ." Essentially, John is is very evangel- evangelistic in his approach. Um, He wants you to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son. Mark's gospel kind of wants you to come to that conclusion... Um, that Jesus is the Christ. But John starts in the beginning like he's writing a new Genesis, everybody. He's like, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning. We beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, you know. And He, he, he came and He made His home with us. All that's like the first 15, 16 verses of the first chapter. So John is wanting us to understand that Jesus is the Christ. And let me just say this too. When People say, well, what do you mean we don't know which John wrote John? Well, you know, let me just, I want to make a point because there's a lot of skeptics out there and there's a lot of people with atheistic worldviews and you're on TikTok. If you're on social media, you're getting berated with a lot of stupidity um, where people, you know, I've, I've encountered people where they'll throw things out like, well, the gospels were written hundreds of years after Jesus and and we don't even know if it's really real. And, and I'm like, what have you been reading? Like, I, I don't know if you know this, but uh, what you just said is not true. <laughs> like, I did, I like um, you know, and they'll say, well, the gospel, you know, what, what we have in the, especially in the gospels, but the whole, t- the whole new Testament's first century. And, and of course now there's the, well, we found these other gospels, the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Peter. Okay. Let me, let me just help you with this. Cause I get asked about this. Those are second century and third century gospels, which let me help you with this. Peter died in the first century. So people are like, it's the Gospel of Peter. I'm like, well, he couldn't have written it. (laughs) But if you wanted to circulate, if you wanted to get notoriety and circulate your book, what would you do? You'd write a book and put a well-known person's name on it. And by the way, if you read the Gospel of Peter and the Gospel, uh, is it the Gospel of Peter? There's just, okay, in the Gospel time. Anyways, there's the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Hebrews, the Gospel of the Twelve. I mean, there's a lot of them, Um, but there's some freaky stuff in that. Just be, in the gospel of Thomas, it ends with St. Peter saying, women must become men to enter the kingdom of God. Yeah, it's not it's not the gospel, right? In fact, the gospel of Thomas is not even a gospel. It's the secret sayings of the Christ and that kind of, anyway. So I think in the gospel of Peter, Jesus comes out of the cross, but it's not little Jesus. Uh, he comes out of the cross and he's like, uh, gargantuan Jesus, and then the cross follows him, comes floating out of the tomb. In other words, you know, uh, drugs, are, drugs are not a new thing. Um, so anyways, <laughs> and, and let me just tell you this, by the way, just so you know, and, and I like to say this from time to time. Now, most of the people that claim things against the Bible, it's usually an ignorance uh, because they heard something on TikTok and they repeated it without really understanding what they were saying. And you can refute everything. And I, I know this because I hear them and I'm like, well, here's the answer to that. Well, there's the answer to that. And sometimes I even put videos on social media just to help to say, hey, if you've heard this, it's actually not true at all. And here's the, the, the right answer. But I want to remind you, uh, we don't need a Bible for Christianity to be true. We just need an empty tomb. If Jesus Christ is who he says he he was, you know, or is, and he rose from the dead. I want you to remind, I want you to understand we had, Christ, we had thousands of Christians before we ever had a New Testament. So, so I just, you know, just like to make that point that I don't believe, listen to me very carefully. I don't believe the resurrection because of the Bible. I believe the Bible because of the resurrection. Are you with me? And so, and I, and I'd love to sit here and talk to you about how we know Jesus rose from the dead. Maybe I'll do that at some point. But it's that's a fun one. But anyway, so the point is, we're in John's gospel. Uh, most people say it's written in the 90s AD. Although I think I could make an argument that all the gospels predate 70 AD because, like in the instance of John's gospel, he talks about the pool of Bethesda. Well. That was actually, um, that pool was actually destroyed in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And so when John references it, he references it as though it still exists. And so typically things that don't exist anymore, you don't talk about them as though they still do. Are you with me? And so, you know, there's a few other things in there that, that you say, well, you could make a case they were written before then. I also like to point out when people say, well, the gospels written hundreds of years after Jesus, and how can we trust them?" Has anybody ever heard of Alexander the Great? This is a great example. But anybody ever heard of Alexander the Great? Is there any doubt that he existed? Does anyone really doubt? No, he's in all the history books. We Do you know the, the closest account we have, the closest writings we have of Alexander 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 the Great were written 400 years after he died. 400 years, right? We have creeds that were written creeds and memorized creeds they're in the gospel. One of the oldest is 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7 uh, or 3-8. through 8, When Paul says this, I deliver you what I've received, that Christ was crucified in accordance with the scriptures. And, and then he goes through the eyewitnesses that saw Christ res- resurrect, or after the resurrection and all that. That creed, historians have dated that creed. It's actually a creed that was shared orally. Um, some that's spoken, remembered. Um, but it dates back to, some say, within months of the resurrection. But everyone says within three or four years of the resurrection meaning that the gospel was preached immediately um, and the gospel account was preached by eyewitnesses who saw Jesus. You know, for instance, you don't go around saying, well, Jesus appeared to 500 people if you're going to meet them in Walmart. And they'll be like, no, he didn't. Are you with me? Because <clears throat> people say, well, the gospel start, You know, came later or whatever. The point is um, that we have great historical and prophetic and archaeological backing to believe the gospels because what's in it is accurate and it's written first generation by eyewitnesses and we don't get that with most of the writings in antiquity and we don't get that with most of the historical figures in antiquity so people put up a straw man and say well the bible blah 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 well alexander the great 400 years i've got writings like you know paul's writing in the 50s this is you know 20 years after the resurrection nobody else in history has that all right okay so anyways I just like to arm you with truth because there's a lot of stupid on TikTok, right? Are you with me? People say, well, we don't, how do we, the Bible, and, the, well, do you understand that our New Testament, we have 20, like, over 25,000 manuscripts of the New Testament? Why is that important? You know, the closest thing to that, think about this, we have over 5,000 Greek manuscripts and 20,000 in other languages of the New Testament writings, That is by far more than anything else in history. Homer's Iliad is the second with 1,800, right? Why does that help us? Because this is why when when theologians say the Bible is true and accurate within 99. Bruce Metzger, one of the leading uh, foremost theologians and authorities, said the New Testament is true uh, with a 99. point I think it's 99.8 percent accuracy. Because we have so many writings, we can verify we really have what they meant to say. Nobody, no, nothing else in history has that kind of accuracy. By the way. So I just want you to have that next time you scrolling through TikTok and someone says, in their little tickety talk, something stupid. <clears throat> Amen? Amen. All right, John's Gospel. So we're in John chapter sixteen. One of the greatest, longest discourses of Jesus called the Farewell Discourse. There are several discourses. Matthew has five discourses. Some of the most familiar discourses of Jesus would be like, for instance. Um, the greatest sermon ever preached, right? That we have in Matthew five, six, and seven, the Sermon on the Mount. We have the Sermon on the Plains. Uh, we have the the Olivet Discourse, where he's standing on the Mount of Olives, and then we have this farewell discourse, is one of the long ones as well, and uh, it starts in chapter, really chapter thirteen, in the upper room. Um, and so this is thirty A.D. This is right before this, is the night before. This is the night of Jesus' arrest. Um, he's in the upper room. It's the same upper room would have been uh, in, uh, near the Zion Gate in Upper Jerusalem or the Upper City. Um, and uh, it was a room that was built on top of a wall, you know, on a house, and they've discovered all this. Um, they believe that this upper room in particular is the Upper City by the Zion Gate they believe this to be the actual upper room where jesus was if you go on a tour of jerusalem this is the one they're going to take you to and it's it's pretty much been that way since the the 300s uh, bc they believe this was the room um, and it's also the room where they go back after the crucifixion where they're hiding out it's also the room probably more than likely on the day of Pentecost where they're gathered praying um, and so they're in this upper room Jesus washes their feet and then he starts telling them a lot of incredible things and we get to chapter 16 and he kind of transitions a little bit from the Holy Spirit teaching about the Holy Spirit and starts kind of talking about hey uh, there's kind of some rough things ahead I'm uh, you're going to go through things I'm going to go through things obviously he's trying to prepare them and then we we get down. I'm just going to read a few verses here, starting verse 31. It says, Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In this world, you'll have tribulation, take part, take heart, I've overcome the world. So we're in a series of messages, Christ versus culture, Christ versus culture. And today I want to talk to you, I call the message just very simply, God and suffering. God and suffering, I want to talk about that. So will you bow your heads with me, Father? Thank you so much, God, for your word today. We are here, God divinely appointed. We're here on purpose for a purpose. God, speak to us clearly today. And help us, God, to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. I just realized I never had you stand. I'm sorry. (laughs) If you ever have wondered if I have it all together, the answer is no. God and suffering. Um, This is probably one of the greatest questions in our universe, I think. Um, And it's trying trying to work out the idea of a good and loving God and the suffering that we see in the world. Um, As far as Christians, it's probably one of the greatest things that Christians wrestle with. Everyone's going to wrestle with it like bad stuff happens, but I love God and God's supposed to be good, but bad stuff happens. I've seen um, as a pastor, obviously, I've seen some very, very difficult um, situations that people have had to Walk through horrific situations people have had to walk through. Personally, I've walked through some very, very difficult things uh, my own self. And, and in those moments, you're going to wrestle this out. Like there's this good and loving God, but I'm going through hell. Um, and I don't know how to, to make those things agree with one another to make them work together. Um, it's also probably one of the greatest arguments against God in, in our world today. People will say, well, you say you have a good and loving God, but look at all the suffering in the world, and how could God be good and be so cruel, and if God can do things, why? why if He's all-powerful, why does He stop the suffering that's in the world? Why doesn't He help? Why doesn't He do this or that or whatever? It's one of the arguments, again. So whether you're in, in the church, it, it sometimes is something we stumble over in our faith, and it trips us up, and understandably, absolutely understandably, and then if you're outside the church, if, if you're not a believer in Christ, one of the greatest arguments thrown at God, all the time, and I need you to understand. As a pastor, and I've been doing this a long time, working with people. I love people. I've I've been through very difficult things. I've been in in many rooms where people had passed away that that didn't. I personally didn't think they should have passed away. Um, you know, I I if I'd have been God, I feel like I might would have. You know, I say I would have done something different. Who knows? You know, that's that's really. Um, not an intelligible thing to say because there's so much I don't know. I just know that it didn't get my vote. I didn't like it, and I didn't like it at all. And probably you've had those experiences. And so walking through that, I would love to tell you, oh, I would love to tell you that today I've got three things that's going to make it all make sense. If I just tell you these three points, behold, everything makes sense. And what I would say is that probably... Although it could be very helpful and it could be healing, it's not going to take away what you walk through, the pain, the suffering, the difficulty, etc. Unfortunately, I don't have those three things that's going to make it all make sense today. But I can offer some perspective as a pastor but also as a human and as someone that's walked through things and also from God's Word and hopefully... Whether you've been through something very, very difficult or whether this is a stumbling block in you and your faith and maybe you're wrestling out and maybe it's kind of keeping you from being close to God or maybe even keeping you from following God at all, I think I can help with that. And so today I just said, God, let me be helpful. I want to help as much as I can. So when we're talking about evil in the world, uh, we're talking about um, there's really categorically two categories. There's natural evil and moral evil. Uh, let me explain the difference. Uh, Natural evil is, is just that naturally occurring bad, right? So there are bad storms and fires and There's sickness and disease. There's things that naturally exist in our world that create pain and suffering. And and then there's moral evil. And I can say it this way. In other words, people can act immorally, right? So, So then there's when people make immoral decisions and they do things that are irresponsible or they do things that are sin or they do things that are wrong, people suffer. They suffer. Other people suffer. Everybody suffers. And so categorically, there's kind of naturally occurring Uh, evil, and then there's evil by choice. Essentially, it's it's the morality issue. Um, And so when we're talking about those things, I want to present, really, I, I broke the message into two parts. Uh, they're not really points, but they're kind of how how I wanted to address it. When it comes to evil, there is um, there's an intellectual problem that we have with it, and an emotional problem that we have with it. And so I want to kind of I want to kind of break those down separately because it, you know how many you know when you're going through um, when you're going through pain and suffering. Intellectually reasoning with someone, or someone explaining to you intellectually why that should be okay, or or why it had to happen, or whatever the case may be. How I many know that's not real helpful? Right. And by the way, we should be aware of this as Christians and believers when people suffer. Most of the time when people are in pain, they do not need you reasoning it out for them. They just need you to sit with them and love them. Okay, I can say this like, you know. Some of the little Christian cliches we have like, well, you know, brother, God doesn't close a door that he doesn't open a window. And I'm like, and if I can find the window, I'm going to throw you out of it right now. Praise the Lord. Right. And so there's something to be said. The Bible says weep with those who weep and mourn with those that mourn. And church, listen to me. Sometimes the greatest thing that you can do is just sit in the suck with somebody and say, I'm here and I don't get it either, but I love you right? So please don't ever underestimate. I think sometimes as pastors, I know sometimes we always want to have the answer. And the hardest thing that I've had to accept as a pastor is I don't always have the answer. And, and it's good to be honest about that because a lot of times pastors trying to have answers have ultimately created ways and beliefs and even theologies and ideologies that aren't even accurate, but they were in, in the good of their heart trying to have an answer. And they There's just something powerful about sitting down and saying, I don't know, I don't get it, but I'm here, right? I don't know and I don't get it, but I'm with you and I love you and I'm here, right? And whatever you say right now, I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm not going to repeat it. And however you feel right now, you can express it. This is a safe place. I'm here. I don't know. I don't get it. I don't like it either, but I'm here. Let's never forget there's a value in that. Sometimes that's a lot more valuable than a Christian cliche. Are you with me? So let's talk about this intellectual problem of evil. So so here's the intellectual problem we have. If God is loving, then he would stop all evil. And if God is powerful, he would create a world with no evil. And it makes sense when you say, right, if God is loving and God is powerful, that it makes sense that there would be no evil. I mean, I'm a dad. As a, as a parent, typically you're trying to do everything you can to make sure your children don't have pain. And you're pleading with them saying, you know, I tried that. It was painful. Please don't try You tried that. Oh, God bless you. That's what I was trying to tell you, Dad. Dad, dad rode that bull and it bucks. Right? Don't do that. And so it makes sense Well, if God is good... God is good, and then, then he would just stop evil. If God is good, he would create a world without evil. If he's that powerful, he would do that. But, but here's what I want you to say. Most of, the time, most of the time, the argument is made, especially from an atheistic worldview, that God and evil are mutually exclusive, meaning there's no way they could be reconciled or work together. In other words, the, the atheists will, mar, will argue, if God is good and the world is bad... God doesn't actually exist. And I understand the argument. I do. I I mean, we're going to talk about it. But I want you to understand this. I've got a better question for you. A question maybe to consider. Because if there's ever a chance or even a chance that God could work through evil to bring about His plan... Or that if God actually uses or could use pain to bring about his plan and his plan had a greater good and a longer effect than the temporary pain, then these things aren't reconcilable. In other words, let me say it this way, if God could have a morally sufficient reason for evil, then these two are reconcilable. You're saying, well, could he? Well, no, let's think about it. I could offer the obvious for a minute. I could offer the obvious that um, that the only way that God redeemed all of mankind was someone had to suffer. And if God removed suffering and pain, that person, Jesus Christ, couldn't have suffered and he couldn't have had pain. And if he couldn't suffer and he couldn't have pain, he couldn't have redeemed us. I could argue those types of things that, that there could be. There could be. See, I want you to think about it. See, we, we zoom in as, as is normal. We zoom into our life. And we look in our life and say, I went through this and it doesn't make sense. And it was hard and painful. And God could have done something or God should have done something. But God didn't do something. But here's the question. Here's the problem. If God removes evil... Where does it start and where does it stop? Because if there's any chance that evil, that God has a morally sufficient answer for, for having evil in the world, then these are not mutually exclusive. They are reconcilable. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but if God were going to start today removing all the evil in the world, where would he start? And what if he started with me? And what if he started with you? Because we do evil every day. We do things that are immoral all the time. It's true. In fact, one thing every human has in common is we all sin. And because we all sin, we all do evil. And because we all do evil, we all do immoral, immorality. And if God decided, okay, I'm going to eradicate evil, He might just start with me. And He might just start with you. Now, if God is loving and kind and doesn't want to just annihilate all of humanity but wants to redeem us and evil could serve the purpose of redeeming us and it has to exist, then God has to allow it to exist as it exists because he can't get in and start manipulating good and evil in the world because he can't start and not stop. So once you have a world that has evil in it, once you have a world that has evil present, if you're a good God and that evil actually serves a purpose, whether you like the way it serves it or not, it is now present and serving your purpose, then you have to take that, that step back, if you will, and you have to permit it, not because you want to, but because once you get involved. Have you ever seen Bruce Almighty? Right? I'm not saying I endorse the movie, but there's some in- interesting theological points. Remember when he says yes to everything and every everybody gets their prayer answered because he doesn't want to individually and personally look at each situation, so he just says yes, 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 reply all over the yes, 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 yes. And everything goes wrong and you would think everything will go right if everybody got the yes they wanted. But it doesn't. It's a silly, silly analogy, but I'm just saying if evil is in the world and there is a morally sufficient reason for for evil to be in the world, then God can't jump in every time we think he should to manipulate where good is and where evil is and how far evil can go and what evil can do. Because if he starts down that road, where does he stop? See, the truth of the matter is where we struggle the, the presumption that we make is, if it doesn't make sense to me, it doesn't make sense. Isn't that true? I don't know. I'm like this way to a T. Like, I mean, I, I struggle with rules and laws that don't make sense to me. I'm not going to say I break them because I'm the pastor and it's Sunday. I'm just going to say there's some rules and laws that I've struggled all my life. It's my personality. Like, oh, this doesn't make sense to me. Why we got to do it this way? Right? And sometimes we're this way with God. If it doesn't make sense to me, it must not make sense. But if that's what you're thinking, let me give you a couple of, of scriptures. Isaiah 55:8. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Is it possible, just possible, if you're wrestling with evil, and I don't want to make light of this subject because I know how it hurts, but is it possible if you're wrestling or struggling today, is it at least possible that God knows something you don't? Is that that at all possible? And if it is possible that God knows something you don't, what would be required of you? Trusting God when I don't understand. We call it faith right because i don't know how this you know they they did a study i think it's called the ripple effect and they talk about how one thing in in the timeline essentially if you're like into all the timelines and avengers and the the multiverses and all that kind of stuff by the way there's a new atheistic theory that's trying to explain the origin of the universe through a multiverse generator and i'm like and y'all are smart and that's what y'all came up with that There is no creator, but somehow, randomly, a multiverse generator happened, and it spits out universes. (laughs) And it just happened to spit, this is, by the way, you can Google it. It's a real theory. Anyways. Is it at least possible, we'll just go back to this, is it at least possible that God knows something that we don't know? Paul says this 1 Corinthians 12:13For now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face now we know in part but then we'll know fully even as I have been fully known. In other words, he's making the same point he's talking to Corinthians he's talking about spiritual gifts he's talking about love, but he's making the point we don't see everything clearly now. And we don't know everything now. That study I was going to tell you about, the ripple effect, it just studied the effect of, and a lot of it was based on evil. Something evil would happen here, but it would have an impact that eventually would bring out other things. And 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 it was this study of like this event happened, but it rippled. And I mean, hundreds of years later, this is because of this. It was a really interesting study. And so the point is, could God know something that, that I don't know. And if God can know something that I don't know, He might have a good reason for not doing what I thought He should do. Um, the truth of the matter is, what we all know is we live in a fallen world. In fact, Romans 5, 12 says it this, the, the, this, this way. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all, Because all sin. See, one of the arguments is, if God is loving and God is powerful, why doesn't he just create a perfect world? My rebuttal, he did. God did create a perfect world. The problem is, he had to put a man in that world. And that man, in order to be able to express love, that man and that woman, Adam and Eve, if you will, in order to be able to express love, they had to have choice. Without choice, love cannot exist. And so God has to give us a free will, which gives us the capacity to make choices because we have to be able to choose to love or not love, to trust or not trust, choose good or not good. There has to be choice involved to choose love. And and once choice is involved, it can be used for all all sorts of things, good and bad, but it has to exist. And so God put Adam and Eve in a garden and he gave them a choice because he wanted them to choose him. He wanted him to choose love. In fact, I'll even tell you this. God didn't want Adam to choose good. He wanted them to choose his voice. God never wanted Adam to know evil and God never wanted Adam and Eve to know good because good and evil was the knowledge that was on one tree and God said, I don't want you to know that tree. So what did God intend? He didn't intend for Adam and Eve to to live by good or by evil. He intended for them to live by valuing his voice and listening to him. But he gave them choice. And they chose wrongly. Ultimately they had one job. Don't eat of this fruit. You had one job. One commandment I give unto you. Don't eat that fruit. And they did. And according to the word of God, when they did, sin entered the world and death through sin, and it spread death spread to everyone because everyone no one escapes the fall, everybody. No one escapes the fall. No one escapes pain. No one escapes suffering. No one escapes it. Why? Adam and Eve sinned. And sin entered the world. And death through sin. But you need to understand this idea. Listen to me very carefully. This idea. That if God were so loving and good, he would create a perfect world. I'd just like to say again, he did. And by the way, since Genesis chapter 3, God has been in another mission to recreate the world perfectly. The word of God says he will make all things new. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the first messianic promise of Jesus Christ, who would be the redemption, who would come to reunite man with God and who would come to redeem creation and who would come to make all things new. And God is working towards that end even now. I want you to understand when, 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 and I understand it's used many times, the argument of evil is used as a means to discredit the idea that there could be a God. But I want you to know it's actually just the opposite. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because I've talked about it before, but it's something you have to hear and be reminded of and understand. But evil is actually the greatest argument for the existence of God or one of the greatest arguments for the existence of God that we have. And you say, how, no? how, how, how so? Evil is not a thing in and of itself as much as it is the absence of a thing. It's the privation or deviation from good. The way we know evil is we don't know evil. We we have to have good in order to know evil. Does that make sense? Are you tracking? I know we're going to use our brain just a minute, but I'm going to move on, okay? So we have to understand there's good and a deviation from good, a privation of good is evil, right? But how do we know what is good? You see, once we get to the argument of good and evil, let me say it another way, objective good or objective moral moral values, so objective morality, good, objective, you know, moral values, all the same, that means there has to be a standard of good for us to know good, because everyone, like we know if you see a baby abandoned, you know, on the side of the road, you stop and you get the baby and you take care of the baby and you go to the hospital, We all know that. It doesn't matter what culture you're in. It doesn't matter what time you lived on the planet. Everybody knows that to be good. Just like everyone knowing torturing babies for fun is insanely grotesque and evil. No one has to have a class on that, right? No one has to have that explained to them. It doesn't matter what culture, what what country, what continent, what time in the world. We all know this to be good and this to be the absence of good. We all know this to be good. We all know this to be evil. But how do we know that? It comes from outside of us. That's what objective means. Because if, if, if there's subjective morality, if morality, and we've talked about this, but if morality is subjective, that means what I say is right or wrong is right or wrong for me. Well, I think that puts us, like, let's look at Hitler for a minute. Because Hitler thought it was very moral, to to slaughter six million Jews. We all know that to be immoral, right? So how do we know that? And he missed it. He was working with subjective morality and we're talking about objective morality. Are you with me? So if there is objective morality, it is outside of a human being. It has to have a source. It has to come from somewhere. If there is good, then... There is God. If objective morality exists, God exists. There is objective morality. We all know that to be true. So it is the argument that God exists. Now, atheists would argue, well, uh, morality evolved. But how did you get morality out of matter? Think about that. How can cells and atoms and neurons and they're all clustering and colliding? How does that make you know Harming someone is bad. It doesn't even make sense. Matter cannot give you a mind, and matter cannot give you morality. If there is morality, there is an objective lawgiver. If there is a law, there's a lawgiver. That lawgiver is above us, beyond us. He is greater than us. And our conscience bear out the fact that God actually exists because object objective morality exists. Are you with me? And so evil actually, even though we don't like it evil testifies that god exists so that's kind of the intellectual problem but now there's really the emotional problem and that is evil hurts suffering's painful and i don't like it and i don't even agree with it but i don't like it right it, it, it's 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 difficult so what do we talk about when we talk about here's this god and he's good and he's loving and he's powerful But I am walking through or have walked through something extraordinary, incredibly difficult. How do we reconcile that? Well, I think the first place we have to start is the fact that, think about this the God of the universe didn't exclude or preclude himself from suffering but included himself in it. The God of the universe didn't shy away or step back from evil, but actually stepped into it and included himself in suffering and chose of his own volition to suffer in and as us in our humanity, as we suffer. In fact, to take suffering that belonged to us upon himself. Do you know why I want to make that point? Because that point in and of itself testifies and attests to the fact that you can have a loving God and suffering. Because the love of God, now listen to what I'm about to say. The love of God is more clearly seen, not in stopping suffering, but in stepping into suffering. I want you to think about what I just said. The reason we know how loving God is, is not because He stopped suffering. It's because He stepped into suffering. Peter says it this way. 1 Peter 3.18, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. This removes the idea that suffering and love are mutually exclusive, that they, they can't be reconciled. That they can't coexist. That God can't be loving and at the same time not stop suffering. No, 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 no. This tells me that these things can be reconciled, can very much exist together. Because God is so loving, He didn't stop suffering. He entered into suffering. God is so loving, He even took suffering upon Himself that all of us deserve. And it was owed to all of us that we were very deserving of death on the cross for our sin, right? Yet Christ steps in and he suffers for us. The perfect for the imperfect. The righteous for the unrighteous. He suffered in our place. And to me, this is a testimony to me that the love of God is displayed in this suffering and that the love of God is seen by this suffering. And so the truth is suffering can exist and God can still be loving. It's what it shows me. What Christianity offers, though, is something really that another worldview doesn't offer. Christianity offers something specifically that an atheistic worldview doesn't offer. Let me sum up an atheistic worldview for you really quickly. And this is going to be a little bit harsh, um, but just to make the point. The atheistic worldview is essentially life sucks, then you die. There's no rhyme or reason. We're just soggy robots of, of biological stuff. And uh, there's no rhyme or reason to anything whatsoever. I mean, this Richard Dawkins, Stephen Hick, you know, I mean, you just quote, quote one of the new atheists, one of the most prominent ones, you know, Sam Harris. I mean, we're just, we're just all soggy robots. Biology accidentally gone right. Right? And nothing really matters. There's no purpose, there's no meaning. At the end, there's just matter. And when it's over, it's over. Here's what the Christian worldview offers. Hope. Here's what the Christian worldview says. This is what Jesus is trying to talk to his followers about in John 16. He's like, in this world, you're gonna have suffering. That's what he says. Like it's it's not a promise he wanted to make, I don't think, but it's factual and it's actual, and we all know it to be true. In this world, if you live in this world, you're going to have pain. If you live in this world, you're going to have problems. If you live in this world, you're going to have tribulation. And that can be suffering. That can be persecution. Persecution and suffering are you know similar, but also different. You're going to have pain. You're going to have sorrow. It's going to happen in this world. But he says, take heart, for I've overcome the world. And what Christ is pointing to in this moment, he is pointing to the hope of glory. And that is, weeping endures for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Paul said it this way, I suppose that our present sufferings cannot even compare to the glory that will be revealed in us. In other words, suffering is but for a short, limited time. This is what Peter's talking about In one of his writings, he's like, believers, listen to me. I know you're going through it. I know you're suffering, but suffering is for a short time and then eternity is forever. See, the promise we have in Christ is that he is going to recreate the world. That he's going to make all things new. And in making all things new and, re, and in recreating the world, if you will, what he's going to do is he's going to lay waste to suffering. He's going to eradicate evil. He's going to judge all that needs to be judged. Take care of every sin that needs to be taken care of. Pass judgment. And then he's going to get rid of all the evil and he's going to get rid of the devil and he's going to get rid of all of his demons and that's why it says and he will wipe away every tear from every eye and there will no longer be suffering and there will no longer be pain and there will no longer be mourning that this is the world that he is recreating and this is why he came and stepped into suffering not without any point and not without any purpose and i would say if his suffering has a point and his suffering has a purpose then our
1: suffering has a point and our Suffering has a purpose, whether we understand this side of heaven or not. It has a purpose, and if nothing else, in and through it, the glory of God will be revealed in our lives, both now and forevermore. Yes, weeping is for a night. Yes, pain is for a moment. Yes, our our life here is a hundred or less years, but eternity is coming, and it is nothing but perfection,
0: and it is nothing but awe and wonder, and it has no pain, and no sorrow, and no suffering. And that's something Christ offers that no one else does. Let let me paraphrase what he said. He said this, you will have suffering. And then he said this, but you can have peace. Oh, this is so good, guys. Here's what he said, everybody's going to have suffering. It doesn't matter what your worldview is doesn't matter what your worldview is doesn't matter whether you believe in God or not you're going to have suffering that's true of everybody but here's what Jesus says for my followers you you will have suffering but you can have peace he said not as the world gives do I give I give a peace that didn't come from this world I give a peace that's not contingent upon this world to give a peace that's not based on your present circumstances. He's saying, I can give you this peace. See, this is an amazing thing. In eternity, our suffering turns into glory. But in the present, he offers us peace in the suffering. This is, this is how good God is. He says, You're going to have pain. It's in the world, it's set in motion. You're going to have pain. But you know what you can have until pain is eradicated from the world. You can also have peace. And it comes from me. It's something you receive. It comes from me. And can I just tell you? can I tell you I've watched people, and, and I've watched them encounter what you will have as suffering? That's coming whether you accept it or not. You don't receive that. It just shows up on your door. That's just life. It's a phone call it's a text, it's a moment, it just shows up on your door. You don't get to choose on that one. But in that moment when that happens, the next one you get to choose, that's what he's saying. This is gonna happen, but you can choose peace. You can have peace. You can let me in. You wanna know the truth of it? I know God's loving because what? He stepped into the suffering of this world. You know why else I know God's loving? Because God stepped into Marty Strait's suffering. And God stepped into Marty Strait's pain. And when he was hurting, and when he didn't want to go on, and when life didn't make any sense anymore, God stepped into his pain. And God stepped into his fire. And God stepped into his blood. And God showed up in his burning, fiery furnace, if you will. God showed up in his lion's den, if you will. And he said, in this life, even you, Pastor Marty, you're not excluded from pain and you're not excluded from suffering. It's gonna show up. And when it does, you've got one other choice. That is, you can accept my peace. You can have my peace. When this shows up, don't say no to God because he's the only one that makes this offering to you. He's the only one that sets this proposition before you. When pain shows up, don't say, no, 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 God. You can't be good. Why? Why does the enemy want you to do that? Because the moment you do that, you exclude yourself. And you remove yourself from the offering of his grace that comes from his grace, which is peace. In this world, you're going to have pain, but you can't have peace. Now let me say one more thing about peace, because this is the hard one. The Bible talks about a peace that passes all understanding. Doesn't it? I'm going to tell you the secret of peace. You can't have a peace that passes all understanding until you give up your demand to understand. You can't. As long as you're demanding to understand, you can't receive the peace. But when you, listen to me, when you're demanding, those hands are closed; those fists are clenched. I want to understand, and God's saying, "As long as you want to understand, I can't give you this peace." But watch this: when you'll give me your demand to understand, I'll give you my peace that comes without being able to understand. In this world, you will have trouble. Take heart. He has overcome the world. Amen. Come on, can you give Jesus praise today? God is so good. Will you stand with me? And I'm going to ask our, our prayer team to come. And we end all of our Experiences with time of prayer. For anyone who needs prayer, we'd love to pray with you today no matter what you may or may not need or how, whatever you have need of, we'd love to pray. But Let's take a moment by our heads and I'm going to pray because what I know, I know there are people in this room who have wrestled with this, who've struggled with this. I know there are people watching online who've wrestled with this, who've struggled with this and today I just want the Holy Spirit to speak to us. So with your head bowed, your eyes closed, Lord, I just pray right now. Lord, I pray specifically that, Lord, there's some people right now that need to give up that demand to understand. And, Lord, that's hard. I know it's hard. I've had to do it. I know it's hard. But God, if they could, they would have peace today. You could give them peace. So Lord, I pray today, give them the courage. Give them the strength to trust and and to let go of that demand to understand. God, there are people today, Lord, that they're still reeling from pain that's many years gone by and many years removed. And there are people today struggling, Lord, to to even get close to you again because maybe they were close to you and then something happened and just rocked their faith. And Lord, I understand that. God, today, I pray they would have that courage to let down that wall and just trust even in the midst of suffering, you are good. And to see, God, that you didn't exempt yourself from suffering, You didn't exclude yourself from suffering. You stepped into it. And today, no matter what we're going through, you will step into our suffering. You said, when we walk through the fire, you'd be with us. When when we walk through the flood, you'd be with us. God, I pray today, Lord, I just feel like you need your healing hearts today. People are surrendering today. They're letting go today. They're choosing to trust you today. They're choosing, God, peace over understanding today. God, I just pray, work in every heart and every life. Lord, let us live for your glory and let us understand that our present suffering is not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. God, we thank you that even when we don't see and understand fully, you are still good, and you are still God, and we can trust you. In Jesus' matchless name, amen. Come on, can you give Jesus praise again?
1: Pastor Marty here from Pathway Church and I just want to say thank you for joining us and I want to encourage you to get connected and stay connected and there's several ways you can do that number one you can download the Pathway app that we are all the time offering resources and information on that app for you you can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and if you do make sure you click the bell so that you never miss any life-giving and life-changing content as we add it to the channel and then also Uh, Make sure you follow us on social media, on Instagram, on Facebook. Look, our hope and heart for you is that you walk in the purpose for which God made and created and redeemed you for. We love to connect people to purpose. We thank you for giving us this opportunity. And if you're ever in Longview or you are in Longview, I'd love to invite you to join us in person each weekend. Listen, I pray God's best for your life. I believe if you follow Jesus, your best is ahead.